our new worship team. I didn't go away. I'm back. Doing a fine job, Jaime. Don't. <laughs> Bet you'll be glad when Mike's back, huh? <laughs> but anyway, this morning we're in Luke chapter 19. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 42. Today is a high holiday in the Christian church. Uh, all of the world celebrates today as Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem because he's growing in popularity. The common people are beginning to flock to him. Matthew uh, uh, talks about blind guys being healed on this day, but John, in his gospel, he says, the whole world has gone after him. And this attracts the attention, of course, of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. But Matthew talks about two blind men sitting on the roadside, the Jericho Road, and Jesus is passing by, and they cry out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. That's a messianic cry. And it's by two men that are blind. And they're calling out to Jesus, Lord, Son of David. And to their surprise, and I think to the crowd's surprise, Jesus stops and he calls out to the blind guys. Now, he might not have said these exact words, but he cries out, Hey, blind guys, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that's my rough translation of it. And instantly, the crowd gets quiet. The crowd is quieted down, and then we hear the blind men say, Lord, that our eyes be opened. And we know our Lord, full of compassion, he goes over, he goes over to these men, touches their eyes, and immediately they receive their sight. And they follow Jesus. Now we have these blind men are going up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem with Jesus. So let's look at Luke's account of the triumphant entry. And by the way, all four Gospels take, make note of this entry. So Luke 19, will read verses 28 through 42. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you will enter. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. 
And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem is the main city in Israel at this time, still the capital of Israel even today. But Jerusalem is surrounded by these little hamlets, these little villages, and Jerusalem was their protection because it is the walled city for these folks of the village that they would run into if they were being attacked by some foreign group or something. Bethage and Bethany are two of the nearby villages. The Mount of Olives is only separated from Jerusalem by the Kidron Valley, and it's approximately a half mile, maybe three quarters of a mile away from Jerusalem. And Jesus sends two of his disciples into one of these villages, and he says, go find this colt that no one has ever sat on, loose him and bring him here. Now, colts and donkeys are very common in that part of the world, especially in that day, but they don't have a sign on them, never ridden. But Jesus' instructions are, find this colt, loosen him, and bring him here. And when you loosen the colt, tell anyone who asks, perhaps somebody like the owner, the Lord has need of him. Now, that's... Very simple, very straightforward, but there's a lot of speculations from the scholars about this command by Jesus to his disciples. They want to know, has Jesus made prearrangements with the owner of this cult? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Or has the Holy Spirit simply been preparing the heart of this owner to give away the cult? To the Lord. They're here again. We don't know. But regardless, as Jesus nears Jerusalem as Messiah, nothing can prevent this triumphal entry. Not circumstance, nor the religious leaders that will speak up in a little while. For in Zechariah 9.9 we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Messiah must enter Jerusalem in this lowly fashion, riding on a donkey. Zechariah's prophecy really gives us uh, a time setting as for when Jesus enters Jerusalem. 
Messiah is coming on a donkey. Now, he wouldn't come today on a donkey. Maybe a helicopter. Maybe a limo. Who knows? But the owner of the colt, they asked the disciples, why are you loosening the colt? Because the Lord has need of him. And this satisfies the owner. That's enough. That's all he needed to hear. The disciples bring the colt to Jesus. They make a cushion. They make a saddle, more or less, from their own garments. And Jesus sits on the colt. This colt, this donkey, has never been ridden in its life. Yet this animal is willing to have Jesus ride upon him. And if you know anything about animals, that's a miracle. You have to train an animal to do this. This colt, he is calm. He's obedient to the commands of Jesus. Meanwhile, the crowd is shouting. They're waving palm branches. And that's enough to scare any animal, in particular, an animal that's never been trained. But we have Jesus, the creator, controlling his creation. Even the animal kingdom is in obedience and rejoicing over Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. As the multitude continues towards Jerusalem in their loud celebration type way, the people are rejoicing and they're rejoicing loudly. They're praising God for the mighty works they have seen. And by the way, just a moment before, two blind men received their sight. But I want you to look at verse 38. They are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That is an exalting cry unto Messiah. They're proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. But when Jesus was born, we heard a different word go forth. Peace on earth. Not peace in heaven, but peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. But here it's peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You get the idea here that all of heaven and God the Father is excited about his son being glorified here on earth in Jerusalem. So we get a picture of God the Father's heart towards his son. Mankind has no choice but to declare Jesus as Messiah. Now within five days, this is a Sunday, within five days on Friday, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. And the same people who shout, blessed is the king, will then be shouting, crucify him. I think, now notice my opinion, the host of heaven are rejoicing along with the multitude 
because the host of heaven already know who Jesus is and they're excited that mankind is finally maybe caught on to who Jesus is. And for a moment, just for a moment, all of heaven is at peace with Jesus being hailed as Messiah. But not all the people are rejoicing. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they call out to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Notice that the religious leaders do not call him Messiah. They call him Rabbi or Teacher. Teacher, you know, we know that your disciples, this huge multitude, they're out of control. Stop this masquerade, Jesus. Stop it right now before it gets any further. But I love the answer by Jesus. I tell you that if these, speaking of the multitude, should keep silent, the very stones would immediately cry out. And Israel is a very stony and rocky place. <laughs> now, maybe you're like me. You want the crowd to hush just for a moment to hear those rocks cry out. <laughs> we do. We want, okay, guys, get quiet. Let's see if those rocks cry out. <laughs> There was another time where Jesus showed his authority over the elements. And that's when the disciples were out on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. A great storm arises, a Eurocliden, whatever that is, strong wind, I guess. <laughs> and Jesus quiets the storm, telling the storm, be muzzled or be quiet the disciples have a response to that who is this that the wind and the waves obey him he's the same one that said those rocks will cry out if the people keep silent wow God of all the nature God of all the world take notice that Jesus draws near Jerusalem and he weeps. There's two recordings of Jesus weeping in the scripture. This is one of them. The other was at the tomb of Lazarus, where Jesus weeps with Mary and Martha, knowing that he is about to call Lazarus from the grave. So why is Jesus crying if he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? He's crying, I think, because of the plight of mankind, because of the fall back in the garden, that all of man now must suffer death, and it saddens the heart of Jesus. In that passage with Lazarus, Jesus has tears flowing down his cheeks, sort of a, a weeping, a silent weeping. But as Jesus draws near Jerusalem... We have a different word that is used for weeping. 
And the word used for weeping here conveys uh, an out-of-control sobbing, a gut-wrenching, shoulder-heaving breakdown into tears and weeping. So we have this emotional breakdown of Jesus as he nears Jerusalem and he looks over this city. Because Jesus, he knows full well the heart condition of his people, this multitude, his disciples. And we hear Jesus say, if you had known your day, if you had known the things that are available for your peace, and that's a gut-wrenching heart cry. This sobbing by Jesus is because his people do not understand who is really right there among them. It's the Prince of Peace. And the peace that only Jesus can give is hidden from their eyes, it says, from their eyes of understanding. And because the people did not know their time of visitation, it saddens the heart of Jesus to the point where he breaks down. He's sobbing. So when we, his people, are in ignorance of who he is and the peace that he brings, it saddens his heart. He has not made us to be ignorant of what he's doing and who he is. So let's look briefly at why Jerusalem, the Jews, the religious leaders in particular, should have known what was going on. In Dan Daniel chapter 9, Daniel speaks of 70 weeks, and weeks meaning years, 70 weeks of years for Daniel and his people and the holy city of Jerusalem. But Daniel focuses in on, and he says, after 69 weeks, here's what's going to happen. The Prince of Peace, the Messiah, will enter Jerusalem. Okay. 69 weeks. But when is the clock going to start ticking? When does this all start? Well, Daniel tells us. When the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 69 weeks of years. 69 times 7 equals 483 years. Multiply that by the days of the year in the Babylonian calendar, which were 360-day year, and you have Jesus entering Jerusalem April 6th, A.D. 32. The very day Jesus rides into Jerusalem has been prophesied and spoken of. Now that command that went forth was not to be just a haphazard command. That command was to be by King Artaxerxes of Babylon. And he gave the command to Nehemiah in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And letters were given to Nehemiah, authorizing him to rebuild Jerusalem and its wall 
And that command and those letters were given on March 14th, 445 B.C. Now Jesus enters 483 years exactly later, April 6, 32 A.D., and the people should have been expecting him. Especially the Jewish leaders, the scribes, those that studied the law and so forth. And because they didn't know, it saddened the heart of Jesus because it was hidden from them. This day of visitation is right before them and they're ignorant of it. So how does that relate to us? Unfortunately, we live in a day where ignorance of God's word prevails even in the Christian church. There's a lot of confusion in the body of Christ as to when our Lord will return. Now, we do not know the exact day. That's been told to us. But we can know the seasons. We can know when that time is near. All you have to do is look around. We do know that the rapture, the catching up of the saints, it must occur before the final return of Jesus. The rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate different events. The final 70th week of Daniel will be the great tribulation period, yet future but we as believers are not appointed unto God's wrath. We're not appointed to go through that time of tribulation because we're not appointed unto God's wrath. And so the rapture must occur before the great tribulation. So when will these seasons, when will these things come about? Well, Jesus said, when you when you realize it's like it was in the days of Noah, violent times, marrying, giving and marriage, things just going along in a normal way, when there's famine, when there's earthquakes, when Israel is restored as a nation, all these different things point to the return of our Lord. Paul in second and first Thessalonians, he explains to us the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. In the middle of the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, which is yet future, we will have what is called the great, or not necessarily the great, the abomination of desolations. When the Antichrist will demand worship in the newly constructed Jewish temple, that Abomination of desolations is a once specific act or event where the man of sin demands worship in the Jewish temple. Now, the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, there's a lot of speculation that it might not be all that horrible. But I tell you this, the second three and a half years will be absolutely horrific when the man of sin demands that he be worshipped the second half of the tribulation begins 
And in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, at the end of the three and a half years of this great tribulation, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy him. You hear a lot of talk about the great battle of Armageddon. God consumes him. Jesus, as God, consumes him with his breath. Not much of a battle. But anyway, just to give you an idea of how these vents might be real close, today there's a group of Jewish rabbis in Jerusalem called the Temple Mount Institution who have everything in place for the construction of the new Jewish temple. They have all the materials that are needed to build this temple. They have all the implement, the lavers, and all this thing for animal sacrifice. They have already trained their priest in the rites of animal sacrifice. When we were in Israel, Lori and I, and our guide found out we were from Alabama, he got all excited, no, but <laughs> he said, do you know we thought we had found the red heifer in Alabama? It was news to me. He said, but they found a couple white hairs on it, so that disqualified this red heifer. I am told they have found the red heifer and are reproducing that cow now. But there remains on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, if you know anything about geography, this Muslim or Muslim mosque on the Temple Mount, a very holy site for the Muslims. So you can't have the Muslim temple there and the Jewish temple there unless it's not sitting, the mosque is not sitting, where the temple will be constructed. There's room for two there, but we don't know how that will come about. But here's what I look for. I look for a man to come on the scene who both the Jews and the Muslims trust and respect. And this man will make a treaty between the Muslims and the Jews for a new Jewish temple right there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, isn't it interesting when we watch the evening news that ISIS is destroying their own mosque? They're blowing up some of their own mosques. I think ISIS is Sunni. Somebody correct me. I don't know the Sunni and the Shiites and all this kind of thing. But if you're not of their group, they will destroy you along with anybody else. And they're blowing up their own Muslim mosque. Very easily, they could blow up the mosque that is on the Temple Mount. So everything seems to be in order for our Lord to return for us, his people. So that poses a great question. Are we, the people of Christ, ready and watching for our day of visitation? Let me refer back. It grieved Jesus tremendously that his people did not know their day of visitation.
In another passage, Jesus asked, when he returns, will he find faith? Faith in who? Faith in his people. People that are watching for his return. People that are allowing the possible return and rapture of the church to purify them. That's the effect the rapture is to have upon us, is to purify our hearts that it could happen at any moment. Paul said in uh, 1 Thessalonians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, when the return of Jesus is. Well, neither does our Lord. Our Lord doesn't want us to be ignorant of it. He wants us to be watching. He wants us to be looking for his redemption, for him drawing near. So here we are. We're at Easter in 2015. Next Sunday, approximately 2 billion Christians will celebrate a risen Christ. That's a lot of people. Or there's roughly 2 billion people that claim to be Christian. But will we be watching? Will we be waiting for the return of our Lord? Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, we know how it grieved the heart of Jesus because the people didn't know their time of visitation. Lord God, prick our hearts. Awaken us to the reality of our day, the day we live in, the day where we will, I firmly believe, get to see you bring in your kingdom, where you will take us, your saints, to be with you. We look forward to that, Lord, but, but let us be that faithful servant. We want to be watching and waiting for you, Lord. We want to have faith when you return, faith that you're going to set this world in the right order. And, Lord, we look for the time when we rule and reign with you. And so we, we attempt to comfort one another, Lord. And you told us to comfort one another by talking about when you return. It's not to be a strange subject among us. We're to comfort one another with, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so we do. We pray for your return, Lord. We ask that it would be quick. Come, redeem your people, Lord, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.